Hi, this is presenter Christodinopoli, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Indigenuity, a weekly radio show hosting conversations with Indigenous knowledge holders showcasing all forms of Indigenous ingenuity. Indigenuity is broadcast live on Triple R each Sunday afternoon. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website or Twitter at IndigenuityAU. To begin, I did want to acknowledge uh, that Triple R is broadcasting from the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations. The Wurundjeri people have managed this land since time immemorial and throughout this long history have developed some of the world's first forms of scientific knowledge in the quest to better understand and work with their landscape. And so if you're out and about on Wurundjeri country at the moment, I encourage you to pay attention to the seasonal markers that we can see changing. So we're approaching a change of Kulin seasons. So Wurundjeri seasons are very cool, in my opinion, because we know the seasons are changing based off of the seasonal markers that you see in your environment. So it's not like an arbitrary date that we sort of go, hey, cool, we're switching into the new one. But really it's through, you know, the movement of the stars, the behaviour of native animals, the cycle of native plants, the feel of the wind, the temperature, the length of our days, and also what food sources are abundant, which defines our seasons. And so these are the things that you'd be looking for to know that seasons are changing. And so on past episodes, we've been chatting about how we've been in the season of bitter up, um, which is this beautiful, you know, early time of year. We have like the long tussock grass growing and drying out. We had heaps of brown butterflies, which I saw in abundance I, over the weekend um, before, not today, but over um, Friday and Saturday. I drove from Pangarang country back to Nam and all I was seeing on the Hume Highway was abundance of brown butterflies and knowing that that is a sign of bitter up. But... We're actually now entering a season called iuk, and I hope I've pronounced that correctly. It is a new word for me. But iuk is actually a local eel that is best eating at this time of year. So iuk season is named for it. And it's also where we'll see things like the binap gum tree starting to flower. The winds are going to grow colder, which for me, I love. <laughs> um, and our days and nights are going to become equal in length for, you know, for a little bit over here. So we have the equinox approaching actually in a few weeks. So if you're out on Wurundjeri country across the following weeks, make sure to pay attention to the seasonal markers um, that you can observe, familiarise yourself with local traditional knowledge, uh, and just to reiterate, it's an honour to be broadcasting out from the lands of the Wurundjeri people, and we pay our respects to their elders past and present. Now we're on to the very fun part of today's show, where I get to chat to today's guests. So we're about to have a chat with Marawari man, Dr. Joseph West. Joseph is the Associate Dean Indigenous with the Faculty of Engineering and Information Technology at the University of Melbourne. Joseph is the author of an article called Australian Universities Must Prioritise Indigenous Engineers, which explores the current flaws in student recruitment methods for getting Indigenous students involved in engineering and proposing instead efforts should be focused on building a very strong, sturdy pipeline of Indigenous engineering interest from a young age. Joseph, welcome to Indigenuity. Hi, Crystal. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you for coming in on this beautiful day. So you've wrote this article, um, which is an excellent read, and I do encourage our listeners uh, to give it a read yourself. Uh, so Australian universities must prioritise Indigenous engineers. Give it a Google. You'll find it. Um, and it's the focus of what I want to chat with you today. But I wanted to start off by discussing sort of, I guess, some sort of questions around what, what value lies in engineering for Indigenous students. So I wanted to start off by asking, could you tell us a bit about the work that an engineer does? What are the sort of challenges that you try to solve in your job? Yeah, I think um, one of the key bits is that it's not just for Indigenous students. Um, being an engineer is about turning science into practical solutions. And, you know, we focus on uh, identifying problems and then bringing technology to bear 
on that and that technology you know maybe uh maybe old systems and practices or modern technology like artificial intelligence oh, okay. and turning those into real world solutions that that solve the problems that we have and so for an indigenous student um you know we have a lot of new challenges with to do with the environment uh to do with uh understanding our animals and how they how they how they develop and their breeding cycles and how sustainable they are and engineering solutions will you know will be at the forefront of helping with those and for an indigenous person in community if they're particularly interested in their country you know um, the ability to bring engineering to bear on their local issues uh, and having it informed by people who grew up in the area uh, would create engineering solutions that you know uh, are going to be actually be sustainable and uh, you know of interest to the local people that are from there. Yeah, absolutely. That is a um, a common theme we try and uh, emphasise on indigenuity about country specific knowledge, and that uh, even if you're trying to engage with traditional knowledges, applying it all across the board isn't the appropriate method. Each country has its own unique landscape, histories, and of course, engineering practices and solutions that are required through that. So then, um, what are, I guess, what would a student need to do to be able to become an engineer at the moment? So at the moment, you know, engineering, um, there are a whole uh, group of different uh, types of engineering, uh, from environmental engineering all the way to, you know, electrical engineering and computer engineering. Um, ultimately, there is, there is a uh, pre, um, prerequisite program, which does, inquire, uh, does require a certain number of subjects and, and a, a bent towards science. But I think there's a bit of a balance between, uh, you know, someone's aptitude and their actual qualifications or grades that they get in school. Yeah. And uh, I think there are a lot of people out there with the aptitude for engineering, but not necessarily the grades. And I think this is one of the motivating factors for that article is that, you know, universities and, and government and industry need to do better in recognising that aptitude uh, and finding ways to release that aptitude, you know, into the engineering stream. And, you know, with my, my history myself, you know, I struggled a lot with year 12, but I got there eventually. And then once I'd gotten there, uh, you know, the whole world up and opened up for me. So I think, I think the fact that, um, you know, for engineering, there, there, is, there is prerequisites and it would be better to get great results first time around in year mm. 12 in maths and sciences. Uh, however, it doesn't necessarily mean that you can't be an engineer if you don't get that. Excellent. So if we are, you know, if we're for whatever reason not having the best experience with our grades in high school and for whatever, you know, there's always heaps of environmental factors that can contribute to that. That's not the end of the road. Engineering is something that uh, should be accessible, I guess, to students regardless of um, regardless of grades, but more about, you know, that drive to be problem solving. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, Indigenous engineers, you know, Indigenous people have been engineers forever. Um, they've, they've always applied the latest knowledge into practical applications. And so, uh, so, so you know, our modern engineering, we have a very clearly defined structure. But I'd certainly say that, you know, Indigenous engineering is, a, is at least the precursor, if not, you know, some equivalent to some modern engineering methods. Mm-hmm. See, that's a, that's a very exciting topic. And you did cover this a bit in your article as well. Would you be happy to share with our listeners some examples of ind- Indigenous engineering? Yeah, so, uh, you know, I, I know fairly well two two engineering structures, um, one called Bami's Nunu, which is a, the Bree Warren of Fish Traps. Uh, it's, a, it's a large stone structure that stood the test of time. It's thousands of years old. Wow. The actual dating uh, is unconfirmed, but it's at least a few thousand years old. Uh, which makes it very, uh, very ancient in in terms of uh, structures, but it still works today. So it's been 
it's been somewhat untended for for 200 odd years but people are still catching fish wow. in it uh, it's still you know it's still it still lets certain size fish through un, un, unattended and un, uninterrupted so that they can go upstream and breed um, it's a it's a system that has uh, a number of tribes that all came together and shared parts of the structure so it was a community gathering place and knowledge sharing place and I think that's the key to indigenous engineering that you know it is community centric it's not just the structure for the sake of it and it's not just it's not just a place to go and grab fish. It's a place to share knowledges mm. and, and has a function. Um, down here in, uh, in southwest Victoria, we have, um, we have a structure that's somewhat similar. Um, the um, the Gundij Murrah people have, uh, have one called um, the... Um, it, was, it was Budge Bim, Budge Bim. right? Correct, yeah. thank you. Yeah, so it's uh, Budge Bim. It's an eel, eel trap structure, which is recently World Heritage listed. Provides a very similar function um, and, you know, is equally as ancient and important. Um, in northwest Victoria, there's a there's a stone axe mine or quarry mm. uh, where, you know, it was one of the common places to go and grab this particular type of rock. Um, in Western Australia, there's a, you know, multi-storey ochre mine. So there's a whole bunch of large engineering structures that, all still exist and have stood the test of time, and that's that's excluding you know the the personalised, tailored, task specific uh, engineering devices like uh, boomerangs and yadakis and fighting weapons and and hunting weapons and tools. Yeah, um, all of these things you know are, are, are engineering because they're taking taking knowledge and turning it into a real solution. Yeah, that's and you've, you've provided as well such a great range of examples of engineering, right? Um, and I guess same applies for the types of uh, pro sorry problems or focuses that people can have when studying in engineering. So similar way from uh, looking at like aquacultural systems and eel harvesting, fish harvesting, like genius ways of sustainably looking after those populations and taking what you need to, um, you know, the mentioning of the yidiki, really cool uh, instruments that are just genius right like the construction and their um, the range of notes that the yidiki can play incredible um and then onto the way to things like uh i guess like tools and um weapons that we use and we have some pretty crazy i don't know the proper name but i know i do know of like the throwing spears where you have the extended stick and then you put the spear in the end and whip it across and yep. the speeds it can reach are insane things that would make you know crossbows cower <laughs> so um there's a wide range of engineering things that uh we can focus on nowadays and great examples that you've given as well from traditional engineering but you said as well i guess was it about the the values that come from indigenous engineering do you feel that there are, are values that belong in indigenous engineering that maybe the modern engineering that we're experiencing in the universities could take from or or should listen to apologies for saying could take from i hate the extractive approach to our knowledges but that that absorption of values i guess is the focus yeah and i think you know the i might have made the point earlier but i you know i think it, it the question of whether uh, indigenous engineering is is exactly modern engineering, mm. but I think there's no argument that it's at least a precursor. Yep. And you know things like community centric solutions, personal task specific modifications, evolutionary and agile development, sustainable material pipelines. If you do a modern engineering course, all those things are things that you're told you need to strive for in your design. So there is there is very key messages in in indigenous engineering that we can use today, and um, the the ability to create a solution that the community uh, takes and implements and utilizes. Uh, for indigenous engineering, obviously it wasn't written down in the same way, 
but you know consideration to tensile strength aerodynamic principles as you, you know as you mentioned there, there is definitely a quality assurance process mm. with regard to when you harvest the wood what types of wood yeah you know, what types of materials you will use and the structure and size and shape of these things uh, all of these things are definitely modern engineering principles that we need to consider and to date uh, a lot of attention hasn't been paid to it it's kind of been overlooked and sort of uh, you know, washed away uh, as far as, you know, the level of advancement of these engineering principles. And it's something that we're trying to do uh, in our faculty. And I think uh, a number of other universities are, are taking the same approach in recognising and highlighting uh, how important Indigenous engineering was and, and still is mm. uh, to be able to teach us, you know, what, what we should be doing in the future. Absolutely. And then the focus of your article then was acknowledging the issue that we're having with Indigenous representation within engineering. Could you tell us a bit about um, what the problem is that you've observed and what you think needs to be done in order to increase Indigenous representation? Yeah, I think uh, to to date, you know, we've had a very uh, we've had a very academic approach to selecting engineers. Mm. Where if you don't meet the uh, prerequisite grades, it's a very easy desk rejection process um, to 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 separate people from you know participating in engineering. But as we talked about before, I think uh, I don't think grades are necessarily a true metric of whether you're going to succeed at being an engineer. Mm. And uh, you know, they're somewhat. Uh, yeah, it's a crude it's a crude metric in which to to measure it. So, finding a better way to measure aptitude is one of the approaches that I that I do suggest. And the talk, the discussion that I talk about in the paper about building a pipeline, uh, the pipeline itself is more moving away from a transactional uh, immediate approach and more of a long term relationship type approach. Mm. So when I talk about building a pipeline, you know. I, we, we can think of it from an economic point of view where, you know, there are inputs and outputs to each one of those blocks of the pipeline. But the reality is on the ground, it means for universities creating long-term relationships with communities, building trust and understanding and recognising the needs of the communities, and then turning those needs and suggestions into the actions that build their the community into the engineers that are going to come through the system. And do you feel like, because you were saying in the article that it needs to start young as well. So it's like a reciprocal like community relationship and support, but also that I guess we're sort of missing, um, I guess, an important starting point to have those discussions because I guess a lot of recruitment is focused usually around year 12, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, there's actually a document that came out um, with a number of recommended initiatives and, and I cited it in the paper. But um, one of the recommendations is that universities engage at a very young age. Because once you're in grade 11 and 12, you've kind of decided what you want to do. Um, And also, if you want to become an engineer and you haven't already done the precursors of science and maths in the earlier years, it becomes a bit too late to do it Mm. by year 12. Now, I'm resistant to say too late because, you know, I'm a big proponent of just keep doing it until you get the thing you want. But uh, but they do recommend, you know, grade 7 or earlier – potentially uh, in building this because it's all about building the spark and interest to want to become an engineer. Yeah. Um, it's not It's not good enough to try to convince someone to become an engineer. They've got to want to. And, and I think there's a lot of good reasons to want to become an engineer. It's just that engineers aren't front and centre. And especially First Nations engineers like myself are not front and centre in, in the minds of these children as, you know, that it's a possible pathway. So, so the key in my mind to building the pipeline is – you know, getting our getting our indigenous engineers, the ones we already have, back to their communities to be seen, 
to be sharing their stories and to be talking to the the children in the schools that they came from to say, look, it's quite possible and it's a great job uh, yeah. and you can do great things with it. Yeah, it is. I feel it is important to. Um, well, I, for me, it was important. I think to be able to see role models similar to me who I could identify with pursuing the ambitions that I was hoping to achieve. It made it feel like it was achievable as well. And a reminder then, so, you know, encouraging, it's great to be able to, it'd be really great to spark that interest young to make sure students are aware of the steps and the classes they should choose in the lead up to year 12 in that hope of that, you know, getting that ATAR, getting to university. And also, of course, that reminder that if you are in year 12 and you haven't got those classes, there are still ways forward as well. Um, I wanted to finish off by asking, so if any of our listeners are, you know, maybe considering engineering, they've listened to this chat, they're thinking, you know, I've always liked either, you know, being like a really visually sort of um, motivated person when it comes to tackling problems. I really like to um, be involved in finding solutions to whether that be industrial or environmental problems. Um, what would you encourage as a good first step for them in making that making that yeah path forward? Well, I think um, I think the first step is to reach out to the universities. Um, you know, all of all of the universities have an indigenous cell. Ours is called um, Murrabarak, and th- there are at, at almost all universities alternative pathway entry programs. So, for the University of Melbourne, we have the Bachelor of Science Extended, mm. which takes people from Year Twelve without the grades. Uh, that they would necessarily necessarily need to get in to do engineering, and those uh, that 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 additional one year of the program covers the prerequisites in order to be able to choose where you go from there. Excellent. And I think I think the key bit is to be informed and to not not rule yourself out. Um, you know, I think you you should make other people earn their money. Someone else is paid <laughs> to rule you out. So put yourself forward, and then if you don't get what you want, then don't don't give up yet either. You know, I, I, I don't know if I should say this publicly, but it took me four goes to get the year 12 grades I needed. Yeah. Um, but I got there in the end and, you know, here I am in the position I am. And it's really quite possible to have a slow start from year 12. It, it's not it's not the end of everything. It's actually the start. Absolutely. I think that's excellent advice. And I think um, really applicable to young people to or, if you know, any of our listeners are considering a career change maybe later down the line. Joseph, thank you so much for your time today. It's been an honour to have a chat with you. And a reminder to our listeners as well, we've just been talking with Dr. Joseph West, um, who's the Associate Dean Indigenous at University of Melbourne for the Faculty of Engineering and Information Technology. He's written a wonderful article called Australian Universities Must Prioritise Indigenous Engineers. I would really encourage you to be searching up that article and giving it a read. And Joseph, thank you so much. Thank you, Crystal. So I'm very excited. We're about to have chat with our second guest for today, the wonderful Julie Jansen. Julie is a playwright, poet and novelist who began writing plays in a remote Yolnu community in the Northern Territory. Her latest novel, Maduka the River Serpent, was long listed for the Miles Franklin Award and has brought a fresh First Nations perspective to the crime fiction genre. She has some new projects coming out as well, which we're going to hopefully have a little chat about. And very excitingly is here for the Black and Bright Festival coming up in a couple of weeks. Julie, welcome to Indigenuity. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, I'm thrilled to have you. I wanted to start off by just congratulating you on the long list for the Miles Franklin Award. That's an amazing achievement. Thank you. Look, I'll just start by saying I acknowledge that I'm on um, Ewan Nation land, the land of the Walbunga and Bringer people on the south coast of New South Wales. Wow. You're, you're, you're a long way from us. It's, thank you for calling in. <laughs> That's all right. That's all good. Uh, look, actually, my latest book actually came out on Friday, which is called <gasps> uh, 
Compassion, and it's uh, the sequel to the uh, to Benevolence, which was my first historical novel set on the Hawkesbury River. So that's actually the latest. But I'm very proud of Maduka, the River Serpent, as well, which came out uh, at the end of um, uh, it, it came out in 2022, right at the end of 2022. Yeah. yeah, that's so exciting. You've got a lot going on. I did see Compassion was coming out in March. I should have searched up the 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 date Don't myself beforehand. Don't worry. That is so exciting. I can't believe it's just come out too. So you're you've got a busy March ahead of you for sure. Yeah, it, it's been good. Yeah, it's um, it's a different sort of attention. Uh, people kind of really like crime novels and historical novels. They find a, a bit of a, a bigger reach because it's they're often longer and more complex. But I enjoy writing in both genres, so I'm happy to talk about either book, whichever one you want. <laughs> well, I'm I'm really so. What was it that drew you to the like crime fiction genre in general? Because that's that's a quite a a cool niche to have. Yeah. Well, I. Uh, I'd, prior to that, I'd written uh, Benevolence, which was uh, a historical novel. And uh, the historical novels have, have been exhausting. Uh, there's a lot of uh, protocols involved and a lot of, a lot of research and, and uh, travelling to um, various areas in the Darug country, which is my father's country, along the Hawkesbury. And it kind of takes a lot out of you, which is kind of what happened to me when I did, did Compassion. So I decided I'd write uh, a novel in between, which would be more like a a social family novel about um, the environmental destruction of the Darling River, you know, something light. Yeah, you know? wow. And um, so I wrote this novel uh, called Wilga, and then it wasn't really working, and I had an idea along with a, a very good uh, editor I was working with that I'd try to turn it into a crime novel instead. So I kind of uh, imposed the genre of crime over a novel that was pretty well already written. And it came out a cracker, it, uh, Maduka the River Serpent, and it got long-listed to the Miles Franklin. So... Uh, that was a bit of a surprise. But, uh, <laughs> That's yeah. incredible! Oh my goodness! So, um, can you like I, I, you know, I don't know about like if you're worrying about um, are too many spoilers to any of our listeners if they're going to pick up the book. But how did you make the transition from having already an established sort of novel and then converting it into crime fiction? Well, uh, the characters were all based on a family that I'd written about years ago in a play that I wrote called Gungies that was on in uh, in Sydney at the uh, Belvoir Street Theatre. And uh, those characters always stayed in my mind as very strong characters, especially the uh, protagonist, Auntie June. Auntie June uh, is a 50-year-old um, a Murray woman living along the Darling River and a Gamaroy woman, actually. And uh, she uh, was in my imagination as somebody who would make a great uh, detective. And so she becomes a private detective after doing a certificate three in investigative services at TAFE online. That's a real thing. You can do that. <laughs> and, and she uh, becomes a private detective and she tracks down uh, a murder of, of two people on the Darling River as well as being part of the activism to try to save the Darling River. Oh, that's beautiful. That, that, is, that sounds like such an incredible book. I'm not surprised to see that it's been long-listed for the Miles Franklin. Um, and I'm very excited to get my hands on it, so I apologise. I haven't read it before today. Um, but I, I, love, I love the environmental focus on the Darling River that you've included as well. Um, we've had similar con- discussions on indigenuity about, for example, the health of the Barker. Um, so it seems like a theme that I think a lot of our listeners have a bit of heart for as well. Yeah, definitely. I think it's more than heart. We have to... We actually have to fight. You know, we've got to be people who go out and protest and write letters and, and generally stir up the government and use our votes so that these uh, rivers can be protected. But the, the next uh, crimes that Auntie June's going to be facing, I've already started on her next, the next book for her, is she's going up to the, uh, to the Northern Territory to kind of take on the fracking of the Beetaloo Basin. Because uh, uh, my daughter was born up there in the Northern Territory near Catherine. I, I lived up there for many years. 
I have in remote communities. And so um, that's where the next crime novel will be set. Wow, that's so exciting. And do you, is this something that you're, you're, you're working on but it's like not concrete yet or is there sort of an idea of maybe like what year that that book might come oh, out? No, well, well, I'm already a third of the way through it. I'm quite prolific. I've managed to avoid having to look after my grandchildren as much as I love them. They're a long way away, so I get to write all the time. Um, yeah, look, I'm already a third of the way through it. It's called The Bloody Crow. But uh, I think the attention that I will get uh, next few months will be on the, the latest novel, which is called Compassion, because um, it's a bit of an epic, and um, and uh, I think it's... I, that, I, yeah, I have a feeling it'll go quite well. I've had some really good comments already by uh, quite well journalists, people like Paul Daly, and uh, so I'm really hoping that that novel will go well. Yeah, yeah. And it's... It, about truth-telling, really. It's based on true stories around the Hawkesbury River and up to Newcastle area and, um, and how Aboriginal people survived in the era of the 19th century. And so would we encourage our listeners to be also picking up a copy of Benevolence before they st- jump into the new novel, Compassion? Uh, they, they, they stand alone. I mean, if you, uh, if you love historical fiction, I'd definitely do that. But, um, uh, you know, compassion for latest babies. So, you know, I'm happy for people to just plunge straight in. It, it stands alone. They don't need to have read the other one. But if they've read the other one, it will have resonances that really um, mean a lot to them because uh, it's, the, uh, it's the daughter of the protagonist that was in Benevolence. Uh, Benevolence is Murraging, Murraging Mary James, and she has a daughter called um, Eleanor, uh, a nickname Nell, uh, Nell James. And this uh, compassion is all about Nell's story. Nell's a lot wilder than a mother. That is so exciting. Okay, so for our listeners, you actually have like a, a, a bit of a to-be-read to uh, list after today. It's homework. So I expect to hear back next week from you all. Um, but a reminder, so we're, you know, Maduka, the the River Serpent, long-listed for the Miles Franklin Award, which is a crime fiction novel. And then also the historical novels, we have Benevolence and now the recently released, literally in the last few days, sequel, Compassion. So, um, gosh. You got it. And you're also you're coming to Nam soon for the is it's in Nam right yeah yeah the the Black and Bright Festival curated by Jane Harrison. Yeah, I've been very privileged to be invited by Jane. I'm very grateful to her. It's a great lineup. You've got fantastic Tony Birch, his, his wonderful book um, um, Women and Children came out last year. Absolutely beautiful. Kim Scott, who I've long admired, Leah Purcell, who's an absolute you know champion. Deborah Cheatham, there's all sorts of really impressive Aboriginal people that will be there and uh, I think it'll be an amazing festival. Oh, it's surreal. I've had the... um the, I've been fortunate to know Jane now for a couple of years. Not very well, right? We, we we touch, we run into each other, we interview each other, we go on, you know, meet at writers' festivals, and this has been very exciting to hear about Black and Bright in the lead up to 2024. So I'm very excited. Yep. The lineup is incredible. There's um, a range of guests that we've had on Indigenuity before, and also that we'll have in future. And you uh, you mentioned Kim Scott. You're you're doing uh, a couple of events for Black and Bright. One of them is actually called the Craft of Writing, which you're doing with Kim Scott and also a, a Wiradjuri poet called Rayleigh Lancaster, who um, I had the honour of doing an event with for a previous Writers Festival. Could you yeah. give us a little bit of a peek into the two events that you're doing across Black and Bright? Well, I'm I'm also doing one which is really exciting, which is uh, right at the beginning, which is uh, about um, images. It's, it's called Through yes. Our Lips. Yeah, sorry. It's right produce 12 images from their lives and uh, and they talk about them including the wonderful uh, Jack Browning who used to be uh, on you know on ABC and uh, and we talk about the images that are from our lives I really didn't know what to send I just picked out you know photo of dad of photos of my desk photos of my dog I, I wasn't quite sure where to go. but I think it'll be very enjoyable and it's a way of showing 
um, the audience that, that the, the kind of the more private side of a, of a writer's life, you know, where they work and how they work. And uh, we get to talk about those images. So I'm really looking forward to that. It's a really original way of getting to know a writer. I found that very interesting, especially when you're used to writers expressing with their words through our lens is one of the events that are on for Black and Bright. And as you've said, it's writers bring forward 12 images that define them in some way. And so this is maybe like images of like family, country, working lives, places and people that have an influence in your life. That's Um, right. So, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm really looking forward to that event. It sounds like a really creative way of getting to know um, some of our Blackfella deadly riders. Yeah, and people can meet my dog. <laughs> <laughs> yes. What, what's your dog's name? Missy. She's very elderly. <laughs> oh, Missy. All right. See, so things to look forward to. And she's under, under my feet when I'm working. So. Is, yeah. she, is she a good company when you're in those long riding hours? She's great company. She never complains. She doesn't win. She doesn't want anything. Perfect. What more could you ask for? <laughs> and so, with your with this um, with the event with Kim and Ray Lee, so the craft of writing, it's the focus is to be like how to write a good story. On yeah. the fly, do you, do you have any advice for any of our listeners who may just enjoy, you know, want to maybe pencil something down that they have in their head? Well, I, I just think everyone. It's important to be really courageous in life itself. Otherwise, you've got nothing to write about. Um, I always encourage, especially young writers, is to get out and have a really adventurous life. You know, I mean, I've volunteered on tsunami boats. I've lived in remote communities. Uh, you know, I've swum rivers. You know, just to, to, and with those adventures come ideas that, that come from a, a lived reality. And uh, I think too many people maybe spend too much time in their head or on their phone or something. And, um, you know, get out and live and you'll have amazing stories to tell. Yeah. yeah, excellent advice. I love the encouragement to be courageous. I feel like I haven't heard that advice for a writer before. So that's pretty special, I think. Yeah, put, you, put yourself at risk, you know. In the, in the end, you know, people get fearful about, oh, I can't write about that because this might happen or this might happen. I can tell you... Nothing much happens. But people are really happy to read your work, and um, and as long as you're honest and true and respectful, and you and you certainly carry out your protocols in terms of First Nations people and and other people. You know, if you're going to talk or have a character who's Chinese, go and interview a Chinese person and be respectful and acknowledge that in the back of the book. Uh, you know, it's it's about yeah, it's about respecting other human beings and uh, living an adventurous life and put those two things together. Who knows, you might become a good writer. (laughs) Beautifully put. So to our listeners, Black and Bright is this excellent literary festival celebrating all of our deadly Indigenous writers. Um, It's from the 14th to the 17th of March, so coming up very soon. Um, I'm very excited because we get to have a couple of chats with some authors involved. Um, And as Julie has stated, one of her, her, the event you're looking forward to the most and also I think is one, you know, one of the one of the key events through our lens on March fourteenth, six thirty till nine pm at the Edge Theatre in Fed Square. Julie, um, you, you know, I'm so looking forward to this event. Best of luck in all the preparation and congratulations on all the wonderful things happening for you in the literary okay. world, from compassion to Maduka as well. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Take yeah. care. Yeah. Enjoy. Right. So we've just been chatting with. Um, I'm so. Pro- oh, sorry. So. <laughs> 
I don't know why I'm off today. I'm a little bit weird. Anyway, we've just been chatting with Julie Jansen about the wonderful Black and Bright um, upcoming literary festival uh, showcasing Indigenous authors and also highlighting some of the events that she's going to be involved with, with um, so that including Through Our Lens on March 14th, 2024, as well as having that workshop, The Craft of Writing with Kim Scott and Rayleigh Lancaster. You can get tickets to any of these events. A lot of them are free. It's just you need to book your ticket. So I would encourage you to be looking up Black and Bright Festival, so B-L-A-K and B-R-I-G-H-T uh, and get involved. Uh, on this note, though, we're actually going to say goodbye for today and start wrapping up today's show. Um, we'll play you out with another track. Um, but other than that, have a beautiful Sunday uh, and we'll see you same time next week. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Indigenuity, a weekly radio show hosting conversations with Indigenous knowledge holders showcasing all forms of Indigenous ingenuity. Indigenuity is broadcast live on Triple R every Sunday afternoon. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website or Twitter at IndigenuityAU.